Hi, I'm Julian. And I'm Darius. And welcome back to the pod. We are buzzing in with a brand new episode. This week, we are truly flies on the wall as we get the inside scoop on data and polling heading into 2024 when we spoke with Brenda Giannini this past election day. Brenda is the current president of Axis Research. She's worked for some of the top names in Republican politics, like the second President Bush, Governor Schwarzenegger, Liz Cheney, and Mitch McConnell. As we are in the midst of a GOP primary and under a year away from the 2024 election, this is an episode you don't want to miss. To it. Um, so tell us about your first campaign and how that was like for Governor Schwarzenegger in California. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about what he was like and what he taught you about polling, politics, and data? So that was the first campaign that I ever worked on. So talking about going in the deep end, most people start out with maybe like a city council race, mayor election. And we went in big, and it was because um, Governor Schwarzenegger really wanted to recruit. He early on saw the the value of data, data and science and modeling coming from more of his uh, marketing background and how it could apply to politics. So he really wanted to build a strong team of pollsters, data scientists, analysts, um, which he did. So at the time I was working for kind of a guru, historical um, sort of mastermind of polling. Um, he uh, and he said, "Okay, I think I'm going to pull you and put you on this race." So yeah. went to Schwarzenegger's race. That was it's important. It's the race to recall Governor Gray Davis. You guys yeah. are learning about that yeah. in class. Um, so it was a really tricky election because there were two questions: one, you had to vote on the recall, and then two, you had to vote on your replacement. So Democrats were very smart and they got their message out there: vote no to recall Gray Davis, but still vote for Cruz Bustamante, his lieutenant governor. Um, to replace him, because we thought it would be a pretty easy win um, if Democrats just voted no and, and went home. Oh, wow. So we pulled it out, but there were also like 50, I think there were more than 50 candidates oh, on the ballot. God. That ballot must have looked crazy. Yes, California. Yeah. Everyone should live out there for at least a year <laughs> just to see the ballot. Oh my God. Between their initiatives and how many candidates run, it's wow. insane. And so do you have any funny story or moment from that campaign? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you worked with the Terminator. I already gave it to somebody else. Can you edit that out? The hug. Uh, sure, sure. They already printed it. I don't know if you want to oh. duplicate. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We Some of these interviews out. are starting to overlap. I know. I yeah. Fresh yeah. Stuff. That's so yeah. real. That's so yeah. real. But that that's great. That's easy to edit out. And sure. so, and another campaign you worked on is the Bush Cheney 04 campaign. So can you tell? I mean, you dove right in, into California, and now, and you also worked with Bush Cheney. So can you tell me a little bit about what that election was like, and what were the differences between working for Governor Schwarzenegger? and then President Bush? That's an awesome question. So yeah. that was a fantastic campaign. Um, that's how I really got into politics, really knew that this is what I wanted to do um, forever. But I will encourage you all right now, if you want to get involved with the campaign, please do. A lot of people who I met that were sort of lower level, um, <laughs> like I was in that Bush-Cheney re-elect campaign, um, we've all grown up in DC together. They're all running successful companies, running their own campaigns now. So those relationships that you make aren't going to seem like a lot, um, but they really are going to carry you through. Um, but it was great. So a very different world in 2004. We were tracking 16 states to be competitive. So there were 16 swing states as compared to now. There's probably like eight. Wow. Um, and the three we knew we had to win. We knew if Bush won Missouri, Florida, and Ohio, he would win the election. 
which probably sounds hilarious if you're an 18 <laughs> to 22 year old now, right? None of those three are very competitive. Yeah, 2008, it was like, in Missouri especially, it was like, like what, half a percentage point? Yes, yeah. Missouri, Ohio, these were swing states. Um, so it was great. So we were polling in um, 15 of the 16 races. I had one of my competitors polling in that other one because they had a special um, niche in that state. Um, so it was a lot to manage. Every morning, um, we would get up about 4 o'clock in the morning and pull out um, surveys, tracking studies in all of those 15 states. But you also, I think that my team ended up loving it. You are the first person on the planet to see the impact of a debate, um, a misstumble, um, you know, what John Kerry would, would talk about his hunting and <laughs> terms that weren't quite accurate if you were a hunter in, you know, Missouri, Ohio, Florida. The, the picture um, at the space station as well. Exactly. So we were kind of the first to see the impacts of those. Um, so it was, that's when I really got the bug. And I can name so many names, people <laughs> that I worked with on that race that, that now you know in D.C. So oh, I encourage incredible. you all to get out there and do that. Yeah, that's incredible. And so speaking about... Um, Speaking a little bit about polls, you, you mentioned how battle states, how battleground states have shrunken in recent years. Um, we just recently saw a New York Times Siena, Vienna poll where they show the former president leading, um, leading out of what five of the six battleground states. Can you can you interpret that data? Were you surprised at all by that data, or what you seen in that poll? Can you speak a little bit about that? I was very surprised by the data. I will say, as a pollster, you know, we want to kind of tear it apart and say, here's what's missing, here's what's good. Yeah. I think overall, directionally, it's right. The only one that looks funky to me is Nevada. I don't think there's any scenario where Trump wins Nevada by close to double digits. Mm -hmm. So that one seems to be an outlier. But I think there's huge warning, obviously massive warnings for the Democratic Party. Their coalition is fracturing. This is the second survey we've seen that. We saw the Washington Post survey, the Washington Post survey that showed the same thing, that coalition of young voters, um, uh, black voters and Hispanics is really starting to fray. And it's starting with young voters um, and, and Hispanic men. And that what that we saw in the Nevada polling um, was specifically black Americans aren't moving to the Republicans, but they're disillusioned with Biden. So a, a massive red flag for Democrats there. Um, the flip side of it is it, it really shows, so um, we travel around the country, do focus groups with voters all the time. And the number one thing I hear is, I want another choice. I don't like any of these guys. And that came through in the poll. So yes, Trump is up. Um, but if you test, it, test Trump against a generic Democrat, he gets pummeled, I think it's like eight points. So you have a swing of like 14 points um, over the course of that. So it shows neither party is putting their best candidate forward. Yeah. Um, and I also think that these results won't hold. Yes, they're a year out. A lot is gonna change. Millions of dollars are gonna be spent to change impressions. Um, but also why um, the, the Democratic coalition, particularly young Americans, people like in your age cohort, yeah would be very unhappy with Biden, particularly in this moment with what we're seeing in Israel and Hamas. Um, but it doesn't mean you're going to vote for Trump. Yeah. You know, at worst case, you, you stay home. Um, Trump would have yeah. to do a lot to that um, uh, black voters, Hispanic voters and young voters for them to mm -hmm. say, I'm going to vote for you. And another question, um, demograph uh, demographically, more specifically about the geography of this poll, um, it showed that it showed Biden um, doing better in the industrial northern states, uh, more so than in the Sun Belt, uh, Arizona, Georgia. Um, so, what do you make of that dynamic? Uh, you spoke a little bit about Nevada being an outlier. 
Well, I think that kind of goes back to history. Someone as old as I have been doing this that this long, those were blue states, that it's Rust Belt. Yeah. So it's sort of new that they are even competitive. Like the fact that we're fighting over Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, maybe Michigan. Um, if you would have told my younger self that, I would have been shocked. So <laughs> it's sort of just holding true. Um, and the Sun Belt used to be red. Like Arizona yeah. used yes. to be pretty reliably yeah. red. Um, so you're just, you're seeing kind of these states as some of them move off the map, you're seeing some states that were reliably red or reliably blue start to purple. Um, and that really is, well, it's, it's two things. It's right, um, it started in the, in the mid-2000s when factories were shutting down and you saw the decline in the industrial Midwest and the explosive growth um, in the Sun Belt with everyone moving down there. Um, and Donald Trump. Donald Trump uniquely appeals to that uh, blue-collar labor union worker that feels, you know, disenfranchised and disillusioned with, with what they thought their, their lives would be at this point, yeah. their jobs. And, and so speaking a little more about that, um, you know, we mentioned Arizona appearing on the map. I think we see a big dichotomy there where you had, you know, Senator John McCain and, and Senator Jeff um, in Arizona. Um, who looks staunchly different from the current Republican Party that we see today. So can you speak a little bit about that trajectory, especially in the context of the 24 election? Where do you think the party's heading? Do you think it will go back to those roots? Or do you think um, this sort of MAGA um, wing of the party will continue to dominate for the coming decade? I think you're seeing a ton of learning in Arizona, right? I think it has to come back if it wants to win. I mean, 2022 couldn't have been any clearer. Blake uh, Masters soundly defeated. Uh, yes, Mark Kelly's a very strong candidate, um, but that wasn't even very close. Uh, Carrie Lake pretty soundly defeated. And I think um, Arizona itself is learning from that. I've heard from people that have met with Carrie Lake. She's come to town to talk about her Senate race. Um, she is much more moderate. She is not talking about um, you know 2020 and denying the election results anymore. So I think you're seeing in real time Arizonans start to evolve. It'll be interesting to see um, if the party moves along with her. And it'll be interesting to see what Blake Masters does. You know, he got in a, a house race there, and right now um, he's down. So it'll be interesting to see if he learns um, from the mistakes of 2022 as well. As, um, as somebody who cares very much about who controls the Senate, I certainly hope they do <laughs> and start producing yeah. better candidates. And so, yeah, I'm going to speak a little bit about the democracy issue. I mean, I think polling shows that uh, like a significant chunk of the Republican Party believes the election was stolen, but that doesn't play well with independent and, and suburban voters. So can you speak a little bit about how the 2020 election and the candidates that you put forth who believe, um, who believe the election was stolen, how that impacts a lot of the down-ballot races and, you know, impacts, you know, your goal, the goal of the Republican Party to take control of the Senate? First of all, I don't have any election deniers. We don't work yeah. for any election deniers, so that's yeah. good. And we've had to say no to a couple. Um, but as the party overall, so what we see is, so a massive chunk of the Republican Party believes the election was stolen. Um, almost all Democrats believe the election was fair. In, and in the middle, when you look at independents, they say there were some anomalies, but not enough to swing the results. So yeah, we see some, some evidence of maybe there was fraud, maybe you know um, mysterious ballots, but it wasn't enough to say that Joe Biden didn't win. So they're somewhat sympathetic to that argument, but the big underlying factor is they're like, move on. 
we just don't want to hear about it anymore. Joe Biden is president. You know, we're trying to get out of, you know, so many different things going on in the economy. We need to focus mm -hmm. forward. Um, so that's why it hurts so bad. And I think even Republicans, and we're hearing this now, they just, they want um, ex-President Trump to be forward-looking. They're saying, quit talking about the past. And I think that's the biggest mistake. Obviously, I don't consult with President <laughs> Trump. But the biggest mistake he's making is, his 2016 election was all about you. It was all about they're coming here, they're taking your jobs. They're coming here, they're making it less safe. It was very focused on immigration, and then we talk about you, but I was the bad guy. The swamp doesn't care about you. The swamp is raising your taxes. The, pump is, the swamp is selling out your jobs. But it was all about you, the voter, and 2020 was all about him, right? This is what they've done to me. This is investigations, and he's only amplified that since that election. I mean... All of his rallies are personal grievances, and it tells me like if he gets reelected, it's just going to be a revenge tour. Um, so it's such a different message, and I think it's a massive mistake. Not that anybody could ever get through to him, but if he were to focus on you, the voter, again, I think he'd be doing uh, better. Yeah. And the other reason, actually, back to the New York Times poll that he's not doing uh, as poorly as you'd expect, is he's not really a candidate yet. There's no focus on him, right? Yeah. In my news feeds, just looking at Republican politics, I'm reading more about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis than I am about President Trump. Sure. So he doesn't have that focus yet. And, and I think that's interesting and that you speak about that change because, um, you know, I don't think, you know, many Republicans, like especially Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, they espouse like some of the ideals of Ronald Reagan, who is still broadly popular. But um, we see like on issues like Ukraine and immigration, where some of those sentiments um, have sort of deviated from the typical, you know, Republican standpoints on, on foreign policy or compassionate immigration, to say the least. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, how you view those issues impacting the 24 election and how that impacts the future of the party? It's tough. You, you had something near and dear to me. So I worked for George W. Bush, so um, I was a huge fan of compassionate conservatism. And he had a great immigration plan that if we could only pass it, um, we wouldn't be dealing with some of this. Uh, you would think Rush Limbaugh, may he rest in peace, for seeking that. You, if, if students probably have to Google who that is. Um, but I think it's it, obviously the immigration debate is going to be front and center in 2024. Um, the difference that we're seeing about it today is you have Democratic mayors like Eric Adams. Um, you've got Bass in California. You've got a lot of Democrats now, elected officials, that are putting a lot of pressure on the Biden administration. One, after there was such pent-up demand after Trump and COVID, we saw a huge influx of immigrants. And two, you do have Governor Abbott Governor DeSantis busing immigrants to other locations, so sort of uh, sharing the pain, if you will, and these mayors are really filling it on their budgets. Um, so I think that will stay front and center, if not only get bigger, now that you have some Democrats that are caring about it and talking about it. Um, Ukraine is interesting. I mean, we're seeing both parties rip themselves apart over wars, right? The Democratic Party is really hurting right now over what's going on in Israel. Um, between Israel and Gaza, and the Republican Party is really fracturing over Ukraine. And it really goes back to that Trump populist on our side. Um, you know, why are we sending a ton of money over there when we've got problems here? Why would we care about their border when we haven't sealed our border? Yeah. And I think that's going to be a big debate. And what's hard is to get people to see that in a broader context of does democracy survive? Like, we have to support this young infant democracy over in Ukraine. 
um, and national security. And democracy at home too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what does democracy mean? And from a you know child of the eighties, like we were sort of indoctrinated that defeating Russia was that goal number one <laughs> since the moment we were <laughs> born. Yeah. So here's the opportunity. Um, so that's kind of weird. I the one thing I would encourage more politicians in Washington to do is not just hammer this home, kind of like I did. We need to fund Ukraine. Like this is how you support democracy abroad and at home. Um, but you have to sort of meet voters on their level. And I think that's what miss, is missing. We're not saying, hey, I understand. We have a problem on our southern border. I understand the economy here sucks and gas prices are out of control. But this is why we also need to do, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't think we're showing that empathy for where people are when they hear, you know, we're going to send $14 billion to another country. And on the Democratic side, I think it's a much more difficult fight, and you're seeing that kind of play out in real time. Yeah. Probably better to ask a Democratic fellow, but uh, <laughs> obviously very, very painful fight that's happening, and a generational fight that's happening within the Democratic Party. With these um, two foreign policy issues, Ukraine and Israel, uh, do you think it's ultimately going to be a wash between the two parties, or is there going to be one party that ultimately um, benefits um, politically from these conflicts um, looking ahead to 2024? Right now, because Ukraine is so backburner and Israel and Gaza is, is so much top of mind dominating the news, Republicans are benefiting. Uh, among the most likely voters um, are much more sympathetic to Israel and supportive of Israel. And so that very public spat, you're seeing the Democratic Party is helping Republicans. And traditionally, you go way back, you know, Republicans have always been the party of national security. You know, the party that is going to, you know, keep keep the defense strong, keep, you know, keep us safe. Um, and so I think you're starting to see that swing back after it sort of, you know, faltered after some missteps. Yeah. Um, long term, it'll be interesting to see who benefits. I mean, if you think about it, Biden is, is, is a president during two two pretty significant global conflicts. He has Afghanistan too. So that too. It's, it's been a significant foreign policy president. And, and that is his sweet his wheelhouse. That's yeah. his sweet spot. Six from years his Senate. on the foreign, yeah. foreign relations committee. Yeah. So he, I think, has the opportunity um, to get the most out of it. Um, but it's obviously he doesn't want to talk about it. Like you know, he's talking about Bidenomics. So if his team pivots and really kind of figures out um, their messaging and their strategy here, I think he has the most opportunity from it. But right now, it's helping Republicans. Yeah. And, I, and I think one thing that I want to go back to that you spoke about was a little bit about how if Republicans would focus on, you know, economic policies and policies that help everyday Americans, that they would see some more gains. And I think one thing we noticed, especially in the GOP primary and which will be tested in the in the in the elections later on tonight, is how their focus on abortion and other cultural issues are impacting the race. And so I really want to focus on that first part. Um, how is how would how do you advise candidates on talking about abortion and how is you know seeing the enactments of kind of dark draconian um, abortion laws in certain states and certain red states how is that impacting a lot of down ballot races and even referendums that we, we've seen you know in, in Kansas you know play out Kansas Kentucky play out successfully tonight in Ohio for pro-abortion pro rights groups well first of all they're not talking about it they are talking about the economy, inflation, cost of living, areas where they think Democrats are weak. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about abortion, and I actually think that's a problem because you are seeing some states and some very outspoken, um, some people that came out early on abortion 
are really doing, you know, no protections, life of the mother, no exceptions, you know, prosecuting doctors, things that are viewed as very extreme. And so if you aren't talking about it, what we've seen, public, the public now automatically assumes you're behind that. We've seen that pro-life label kind of shift, right? And so they're saying if you're pro-life, that means you're for that. No exceptions for rape and incest, no, you know, 12 week, 15 week limit, just no abortions anytime. And so I think if candidates need to be talking about that, candidates need to be saying this is what I'm for because you need to hear whatever it is you're for. I mean, I can't tell you what you believe, but if you're for you know abortion up to 15 weeks, up to 20 weeks, up to six weeks, if you're always for exceptions to save the life of the mother, always exceptions, you know, incest, rape, um, you know, whatever it is, candidates need to be articulating that. I think Republicans, by their silence and burying their head in the sand, quite frankly, have allowed Democrats to define them on that issue. So they aren't talking about it and using it in campaigns, which I think is a mistake. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of harsh stories, especially groups in Texas where women have been forced to carry, you know, fetuses that have already had significant complications, you know, the case out in Ohio. And so I definitely... I'm not here to defend that. Yeah, no, 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 no (laughs) doubt, no doubt. It's just how that impacts the entire discourse around, you know, the policy around abortion. I think that's also... Well, that's what I was talking about, those early states that adopt those policies, like uh, Texas and Idaho are the ones that come to mind. Um, and by not by the other states not responding, they've let that sort of stand as this is the party. Yeah. And how much weight would you say the abortion issue, looking ahead to 2024 and this election day, how much weight do you think the abortion issue is going to hold in terms of affecting the outcome? I think think it's going to stick around and because Democrats are smart, right? They see this as a, a very strong issue for them. And right now they don't have a lot of issues in their on their bench. So they're very smart to keep sticking to this um, and keep bringing it up. The question will be, do Republicans start talking about it, start saying their own nuanced positions? And quite frankly, you had the sort of the head of the pro-life movement that pushes on the, Dem- or the Republican Party, Susan B. Anthony list come out for a 15-week abortion ban. Um, So if you have, that's the Republican position, and Democrats in the Senate took a vote, a lot of these senators that are up, Manchin, Brown, Tester, um, to allow abortion up to the moment of birth, it completely changes the debate. Like, then all of a sudden, Republicans are looking moderate, and Democrats are looking more extreme, but Republicans don't want to talk about it, so you've got to get that out there. And so speaking a little bit about that, um, we've seen sort of, um, I just want to go into Nikki Haley rise in the polls in the early states in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, what does that say about the state of women and the GOP and how they should play a larger role in Republican politics, especially at this moment? Well, I think if you look back to 2022, <clears throat> almost all the candidates we won with and we took the, the House back with were women or veterans. So it really shows that's what's missing. And I think the abortion debate's probably a good example of it. It's missing that empathy, like I said, on Ukraine. So I think um, senators and people that are out there speaking need to show that empathy before you say we need to, to, to focus on Ukraine. And I think that's sort of what's missing on our side. I also think, though, taking gender out of it, um, I don't know if you've watched, probably haven't watched the Republican debates, but um, <laughs> Nikki Haley has been tenacious and a fighter and more than anything, I think it shows the appetite within the party for someone that's going to fight back. The Republican base is angry. And I learned this hard way. I worked for Jeb Bush in 2016. <laughs> oh, wow. Not the anger client, right? 
uh, or the anger candidate. So we missed the mark on that, but that anger is still there. So even her gender aside, she has come out swinging and fighting and back to she's fighting for you. She's even taken shots at the Republican Party in some of those debate appearances, um, you know, Trump spending. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that is what's making her rise. People don't care if she's wearing a skirt or wearing pants. She's like, she's going to go there and kick ass for me, and that's what I want. Do you think there's a chance? Uh, if do you, well, to clarify, do you think if some magical thing happens, and you know, similar to what we saw in the 2020 Dem primary, candidates would coalesce, co- coalesce around a one candidate that isn't Trump? Do you think that holds any potential weight, or do you think Trump's domination of the GOP is sort of ironclad? Well, I think he's, he's definitely got the nomination. What I think Nikki Haley needs is Ron DeSantis to get out of it. And he has shown no, no interest in that whatsoever. But if you saw um, him get out and her take a significant chunk of that vote, I think a lot of the others would get out. Because then that becomes much more competitive. You know, you're looking at what she's probably down 10 instead of 30. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, on the issue of Trump in the general, uh, if he gets the nomination, how would a Trump conviction before Election Day, uh, and this is just a hypothetical, um, affect the outcome at this point? Because we've seen him indicted numerous times, uh, but no conviction as of yet, of course. Well, I don't have fresh data from last night to show after his very <laughs> loud and contentious uh, testimony went. Um I think it will have a small impact. Like, if you go back to the New York Times poll, Trump is winning a lot of audiences. He really doesn't have any business winning or are very tight amongst some audiences. I think that will matter. When you come back, he's always going to have a floor. He has this very loyal base that feels like he's being wronged. The Department of Justice is out to get him. The FBI is out to get him. Your even convictions aren't going to turn their minds. At best, you can say, they might say, okay, it's time to move on. We need somebody new. I'm tired of this circus. Um, but so he's always going to have like a good third of the electorate. Um, but I think some of those independents that are so frustrated with Biden, Biden frustrated with the economy right now, be it real or perceived, um, I think they would turn off to Trump. But that's also why I think you're seeing these independents have just amazingly high numbers in some of these polls. Like, yeah. And so, I guess, I wonder, what do you think about the Biden's team messaging strategy? And do you think, um, you know, because what we've seen is that early on he had a large number of bipartisan victories on issues that are deeply, broadly popular. Um, And so, do you have any concern that there could be a sort of messaging campaign that actually, you know, changes the numbers on the economy or things like that? Or do you just think that, or do you think that... um, you know, Republicans will remain solid on this and that Democrats need to find other issues where they're more popular. I've said this since the beginning, and actually when the fellows first met at GU Politics in the living room, um, I said, I don't know what you guys are doing, and Cristobal Alex laughed, and he goes, what do you mean? And he knew exactly what I meant. (laughs) So the hardest thing that we all know as political operatives is to convince somebody of something that they already believe is not true. And that is exactly what Team Biden is trying to do. It's much easier to say, I don't know so much about this, and you can fill in the blanks, you can educate me, or I'm not sure about this, I'm hearing from both sides, and you can sort of try to persuade me to your side, and that's the business that we're all in, right? We try to persuade, or what Team Biden is trying to do is they're trying to 
take you who says the economy's not great. I'm not, it's harder to find a job. Everything's more expensive. Every time I fill up my car, it costs, you know, hundred bucks. And they're trying to convince you that it actually is good. And they're right that they're using statistics and they're using facts and they're using, all, but people don't feel it. So it's, you're telling them something that they don't believe is true. And you just look like another mouse, mouthpiece in Washington. So I laughed that day and I was like, I hope they stand by binomics as long as they can. And everyone just kind of rolled their eyes. I mean, it's, um, it was an interesting choice. And I get why they were drawn to it. They're right. The overall, the economy's health looks good, unless you need a mortgage on paper. <laughs> um, but it's just not what people are feeling. Yeah. Same thing and on so, crime. Yeah. If he pivots to crime next, he needs new advisors. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess one big thing that we didn't really speak about much was the House. Um, the House finally found a speaker. <laughs> it, it took a few weeks. I had to Google him. <laughs> I learned about who he was right along with you. I did not yeah, know who he was. Terribly funny. And I think now we see we see that he's sort of more on the right wing of the party. How do you think a lot of that will impact, you know, the 2024 House results? It'll be interesting. I think I think you could see a lot more uh, a more productive House because he's going to keep that right flank together. Hopefully together long enough to do a rules change. I'm just looking at um, headlines out there too. Yeah. <laughs> spending. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it could be more productive short term. I think long term it hurts. I mean the house. I, sh- I shouldn't say this, but in the sweet my sweet spots the Senate. Um, I think the house is probably already gone because of redistricting. What you're seeing in New York. Guess you're seeing some pushback in places like North. Uh, North Carolina. Um, so I think I think it's going to be tough. There's there's never going to be a wave election again just because of redistricting. So I think it's going to be it'll still be on the margins. But I think the Dems probably have it. I think the challenge for Democrats is right now. I mean, I still call him Speaker Johnson because I have to pause to remember his first name's Mike. <laughs> like, and I live in this world, right? Yeah. And so I don't know who he is. So if Dems can make him the face of the party. I think he will certainly hurt if he becomes, you know, what Nancy Pelosi was to the average voting Republican. I think that's going to be hard to do, though. I just don't think America cares. America isn't turning into news like they did during the Trump years. It's just not as chaotic or as interesting, I guess, to watch, (laughs) depending on your viewpoint. Yeah, I know. So I think there's an opportunity there if Democrats throw enough money at it to say, hey, this is the Speaker of the House. This is what he believes in. You know, he's this guy from Louisiana. Um... But I mean, it, it took us a long time to get Pelosi there. Yeah, yeah. So. And she was there for since since the beginning. She was the best yeah. boogeyman ever. Yeah, yeah, I miss her. And she and she could whip votes. Oh, she, she was a very effective speaker, wow. but she was also very expect, uh, effective at turning out Republicans. Yeah, yeah, she became yeah, yeah a good face of the party. And so, I think it's about time to hop into our lightning round. A few quick questions. Okay. Um, a few interesting questions as well. So, what was your favorite campaign of the ones you've worked on? Oh, they're all wonderful. They're all <laughs> angels. <laughs> now, I'm going to have to say Senator McConnell's team. And I think that just how we were saying about Nancy Pelosi, she was an incredibly effective speaker. And I have so much respect for her. And I think there's a lot of Dems I talked to the same thing about Leader McConnell. He builds coalitions, he builds teams, and his campaign teams are very effective. There's no infighting, there's no backbiting, there's no leaks. Everyone has a say at the table, everyone is heard, um, and everyone feels like they're part of the discussion. So when you make a decision and move on, everyone agrees this is the best the best way forward, or at least feels like their viewpoints were heard. 
Um, and he's very supportive of his teams. So I think by far and away, it's just the most efficient. There have been so many campaigns that will go, life's too short to name them, um, you know, where you have so many people internally jockeying for position or, um, you know, trying to get a leg up in the press that it's toxic for campaigns. Yeah. And so this President is... President Trump's administration <laughs> would be issue one Turn there. Over. Yeah. And so this is a shout out to another fly podcaster, Fiona. Um, what is your favorite math? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Differential equations. Top four. Yeah. <laughs> Stick around for it. It's usually like late sophomore year. So given your campaign experience, you have worked for two Cheneys. So Liz Cheney or Dick Cheney? For what? Like a beer or to run again? <laughs> um, anything. Uh, I'd love to have a drink with Dick Cheney. I... I I love Liz Cheney. She's actually, she is so laser focused on policy and saving democracy. Yeah. She, she, she lives in that wheelhouse where Dick Cheney will talk about fishing and hunting. <laughs> um, but when it comes to running again, I think, um, I think Liz Cheney, I think history is going to view her very favorably. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope it's in my lifetime and I hope she could, could run again. Yeah. And um, you're a dog lover. Oh, I am. Yeah. I, am. I don't know how you do that, but yes. <laughs> so, can you tell us um, what I'm looking your... forward to the new Georgetown mascot. Oh, yeah, me too. And even Emily had her dog in here last time we were recording. It was so adorable. Oh, that's uh, nice. Yeah. But, um, and I guess, so what is your favorite dog breed? Oh, 100% shelter dogs mixed. Oh, they're healthier. Yes. They're happier. They seem to just kind of know that they've got a good thing going. Yeah. And the pure breeds, they tend to have lots of injuries, and yeah, yeah. and we're all mutts at the end of the day. (laughs) Thanksgiving is fast approaching, so apple or pumpkin pie? Ooh, pumpkin, 110%, yeah. That's good. I don't really have a good reason other than it's just delicious. (laughs) And so, and for our last question, you've worked on a lot of campaigns, um, both national and statewide. So what is your favorite method of travel on a campaign. Oh, anything but the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go rental car and it's, it's never nice because all the campaigns are in like, so right now all the Republican campaigns are in Iowa yeah. and all the campaigns mandate that you only rent an American car. And the last time you guys rented a car, they're almost all like Toyotas or Nissans. Yeah. So it becomes all these campaigns fighting over the one like Ford, so, Festiva or whatever it is and so you've got this like 20 year old car but it still beats the bus oh it's incredible well thank you so much thank for joining guys. us on the pod yeah. today I, I really loved our conversation and you know again happy election day um, get out to the polls make your voice heard yes and yeah we'll see how we'll see the results later on tonight thank you to the fly I hope you guys have a good election night watch party thank you so yes. much Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Spairdlove. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University 
Institute of Politics and Public Service, and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening, and fly with you soon.